Hey everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I hope you're doing well. So I wanted to talk a little bit about things that I have learned about the poor growing up as I did poor. And it was I grew up poor in a variety of locations. I lived in uh, London, uh, England, of course. I lived in Canada. I lived in Whitby, you name it. And I just really did manage to learn a lot about the poor, having seen them in a variety of places, and what makes them tick and what the genuine and general problems are. So the first thing I think to recognize about the poor is that they are often very intelligent, but what generally they lack is wisdom. These are big generalities, so there'll be lots that that hits the mark and lots that doesn't. But what they don't have is a wisdom. There tends to be a lot of impulsivity. There tends to be a lot of vanity among the poor, which is why they convert any excess income not into savings and so on, but into um, unnecessary expenditures, vanity expenditures, consumables, and so on. And they have a tough time holding up and gathering onto resources as a whole. That's a big problem. The impulsivity is a big problem. Uh, lack of consequences of actions uh, is a big problem. And the the mindset is, is a big issue as well because what happens with the poor is they tend to glamorize what they're doing and what they're going through. That's the, the big problem is not dysfunction. The big problem, as I talked about not too long ago in the I Hate Cool video, the problem is when you begin to glamorize what it is that you're doing. Like, I'm not poor, I'm authentic. Uh, I'm I'm not poor, I, I refuse to be a wage slave. I'm not poor, I refuse to bow down to the man, all that kind of stuff. And that is where the real entrapment begins. Somebody who is afraid of trying to succeed. Like, I had a friend when I was growing up, good singer, good guitarist, you know, loved to write songs, talented, all that kind of stuff. But what happened was he was so cynical that anybody who was a successful musician ended up in his mind being a terrible sellout, like just a wretched and terrible sellout. And because of that, he kind of stymied his own capacity for success because he had defined being a successful musician as being a sellout. I remember him making fun of you know, pretty good band Tears for Fears with some very talented singer-songwriters. And he was like, uh, the, one of the big albums was Songs from the Big Chair. And, you know, these guys had 80s hairstyles. And he's like, Songs from the Big Hair, you know, it was his sort of big cynical thing. And he would get very cynical about, you know, there was a, a remake of Dancing in the Streets, um, which is the old Motown song. And I think it was Van Halen or something like that. And he was like, yeah, these people, they, they think Van Halen wrote that song. Like all this kind of superiority that went along with that. And because of that cynicism, he could not unreservedly throw himself into pursuing his love of music. Because to be successful was to be a sellout. And the cynicism was, I think, what really trapped him in that so all right let's uh, talk a little bit more about that later i'm just here for a call-in show so i did want to check in with people i wanted to wish you of course happy holidays merry christmas and happy hanukkah and all that kind of good stuff kwanzaa too i guess if that's your gig let's move on to the next caller who wants to talk about the french philosopher jean-jacques rousseau i do believe gary uh, is it gary are you on the line 
Yes, uh, yeah, I'm here, Stefan. Hey, thanks I'm for your patience, man. Uh, how you doing? You. I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, that last caller had a lot of co- ground to cover, and I appreciate that. Uh, the only way I could sum it up is the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> From order it. to disorder. Right. That, that seems to be how society goes these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, anyway, uh, we disintegrate and reintegrate. Um, I, I wanted to get your take on uh, my view as a Christian. Now, I lived my whole life uh, without Christ until age 33. And when I discovered him, I went back in my history of education and I uh, reviewed a certain French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or as they say, Rousseau. (laughs) He held a maxim in his personal values that is true in its application uh, to our sinful nature. Uh, He, as an unconverted soul, held a view uh, where he summed it up saying, what one does is for oneself, no exception. Everything man does is self-serving by nature. But when we uh, carry this principle to the issue of God's salvation and the principle of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, uh, Rousseau, Voltaire, Nietzsche, and before them Plato and Aristotle, to me, brother, are exposed as the godless thinkers they were. To say that a soldier who throws his body over a grenade to save his fellow soldiers is selfish? I'm sorry, brother, that is fundamentally immoral thought. Uh, this thinking is satanic to me at its core. But this is precisely how immoral thinking works its way into our society. When we compare today's values to those of a generation ago, it is as different as night and day to me. I'm, I'm 62 now, and I've seen quite a bit, and I'm sure you have too, brother. <laughs> In essence, one long step uh, usually leads to another. The epitome of this self-centered philosophy is exposed when we look at the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ at this Christmas time. When Christ, of his own volition, went to the cross on Calvary, this atheistic philosophy accuses him of doing it selfishly to satisfy his own greedy nature that we all share. To me, nothing more foolish could ever be associated with God's efforts to save man from sin. This assertion accuses Jesus Christ of being guilty of sharing man's sinful, egocentric behavior. To me, Stefan, nothing could be further from the truth. But this is what sin has wrought in the hearts of men. And I would like uh, to know your take on this as a fellow believer. Well, as far as selfishness goes, there is the problem of our animal natures. And the problem of our animal natures is that animals are fundamentally driven by uh, self-interest. And if they appear to be acting for the group as a whole, it's usually because it's a better way for their genes to survive. You know, like if the soldier ants are out there doing their soldiering, it's better for the survival of the ant genes as a whole. So when it comes to selfishness, our animal nature draws us in that direction almost inexorably. And when it comes to human motivation, we do have to have a reason behind what it is that we do. And so when someone does something, whatever it is, then we assume that they have a motive for doing it, that they have they expect to gain some sort of benefit for, for doing it. So the soldier who throws himself on a grenade to save his fellow soldiers, we would say, well, for him, that is a benevolent act, or maybe he just hates being a soldier so much he'd rather blow himself up and, and wants to do it for a good cause. But he must Weighing on the balance, weighing yeah, on the balance, no, he understand. must view that as something that is beneficial or that he's willing to do, 
And so you can look, it's sort of almost like a tautology. You can look at what human beings do and you say, well, because he's doing that, he must be doing that because he considers it beneficial or positive or it serves him in some manner, even if it's death. It's, he would rather himself die to save his fellow, whatever, right? So that's a very cynical way right. of looking at humanity. And of course, the whole point of humanity is we're really supposed to surmount what the animals do. I mean, we have this amazing capacity to reason and conceptualize and, and view consequences of our actions and plan and defer gratification and all that kind of stuff. And that should give us more choice, more value, more heft, more weight, more consideration of others than mere animals have. And one of the things that I find powerful about Christianity is it attempt, it wrestles with the mammal immediate self-interest, right? I mean, you, you give animals food and they'll just eat it. And you give them opportunities to have sex when they're in heat and they'll just take it. And Christianity, of course, attempts to counterbalance the mammal selfishness and greed and lust, which is, you know, it's unfair to, to say that a, a lion is, is greedy, uh, because it doesn't really have the capacity to not be greedy. It's like calling it a murderer for killing um, a, a zebra. Like, that's that's how it lives. And so, to me, one of the powerful things right, about Christianity, right. hang on, one of the powerful things about Christianity is it takes this big, like, we got the seesaw, right? There's a seesaw, and on one side is the evolutionary greed of the mere mammal, and Christianity, on the other side, puts divine imperatives and the example of Jesus and says, listen, this has got to have some weight in your calculations, more than just the blind lust of mammalian pleasure-seeking, which is reducing our powerful capacities to that of a very cunning mammal. On the other side of the seesaw, by gosh, we've got to put something, something more than your individual greed. Now, Rousseau, of course, had this idea of the general will, uh, this, this collectivist idea, and, and that was what you were supposed to submerge yourself to. And, of course, the general will always manifests itself in the power of the state, which makes you a, basically a worker slave to, to the state. But what Christianity does is it takes our capacity for eternity, our capacity for infinity, our capacity for abstractions and conceptions and so on, and balances with the divine, with the example of Jesus, it balances the immense dead weight of evolutionary greed that characterizes our animal self. And since Christianity has lost its power in the West to a large degree, you can see this animal nature just taking over. You can see this, you know, empty lust, Agreed. sexuality, greed, materialism, hoarding, um, political power. Now it's just turned into a war of mammals attempting to gain control of the state and of the printing presses of the central banks and so on. And there's nothing that, like, we've just yep. slammed. The whole the whole seesaw has slammed down onto the mammal, and we have become beasts. And uh, that, I mean, I've certainly tried to countervail that with philosophy, but uh, I'm not going to say that, you know, one guy <laughs> in his studio can... Um, outdo thousands of years of, of Christianity, but that's sort of my take on it. What do you think? Okay. Um, the greatest lesson I can share with you, Stefan, and I've been uh, listening to you for many, many years now, and I've always complimented your wisdom and your work, and I applaud you because your voice is rare, brother. And I'm surprised Fox and other uh, TV stations don't have you on all the time. <laughs> but that's to their shame. <laughs> But when I contrast the love of man versus the love of God, 
I go to uh, John 21 after uh, Christ's resurrection, and he faced off with Peter. And those who know the story, Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus addressed this moment in Peter's life. And allow me to quote this from John uh, three nineteen to 21. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me with unselfish love more than these, the other disciples? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee with a limited selfish love. Two different Greek words. One is agape, the other is phileo. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me with a love that seeks the other's well-being regardless of the cost to yourself? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee with a futile love that exerts in vain. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me with a limited selfish love? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me with a failing love? He saith unto him, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Thou knowest that I love thee with the only love I am capable of. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Now we come to the day of Pentecost, right? And the Spirit of Christ comes to the hearts of men, and he brings with him agape. That's what we are promised through the gospel. And without agape, no one will survive to eternal life. And that's my summation of the whole uh, message of Christ to this world. Well, well summed, well summed. I appreciate the call, and um, we have to find a way to bring back the balance of our higher natures versus our animal natures. And Rousseau, you know, was right. straight in with right. the animal. He was straight into, you know, that we, we started in paradise. There was this radical egalitarianism in the state of nature. And then we were all corrupted by civilization. And the only chance we have for equality of opportunity and equality under the law is less violence, less state, less power. And um, right. the idea that we somehow lost our Garden of Eden through civilization is, um, well... Right. It's, it's ghastly. Right. You know, we, we, we never had a Garden of Eden. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, we, we crawled out of uh, blank, blind, murderous, mammalian nature, and we have tried to hold on to some scraps of humanity that seem to be continually torn out of our grasp by greed and envy and resentment and the sins that we used to fight and seem to have surrendered to. So, yeah, thanks for the call. I really, really appreciate that. And let's move on to uh, Mark you wanted to talk about, when I mean, it says here, the ordered sequence of values. Um, I'm not sure that, that translates too well to anything I know what you're talking about. Perhaps you'd like to enlighten me. Thank you, Stefan. Hi. Um, so uh, if one has a series of values they're pursuing, they can all be consistent and congruent with each other. Um, you know, the, the fundamental one being like, say, food and shelter that you have to, uh, that there's food and shelter. They're both things to pursue. They're both necessary good things. And I'll get to the real reason why I'm talking about this is that, um, that sometimes based upon the circumstances of the individual or the society, uh, the person's in that these have to be pursued in a particular sequence in order to make sense. You could say about the food and shelter one that you don't pursue shelter unless you have no food first, which would be kind of the obvious, you know, reductive reasoning for that. But in the modern day here, and I think this might have reflected something that the caller two back was discussing or getting into is this problem of, integra- of, uh, of immigration and populations and such. And, and uh, I uh, deal a lot with 
a libertarian world and have been for many, many years. And what I found that is a problem is that uh, the people of, of the libertarian uh, mindset value both um, you know, free movement of peoples and free markets, and these are all great things. Yet in our, our current political uh, movement towards something better or solving problems, that I'm having difficulty discussing with them the need to, you know, to uh, eliminate the welfare state before one can truly pursue the ultimate virtuous goal of free people moving across the world without governmental interventions or restrictions. So I was wondering what you had to to say about, um, I know the discussion about, you know, simultaneous interests that it may seem evil not to pursue them at this time. Like, well, you know, for, for free people in free borders right now, we can have that right now, but then it would lead to ultimate destruction since the entire world would come here. And then of course we would, we would perish again. That's my opinion, but I think that's, that's probably something that you may not disagree with. Okay. So it's because this is something that I get, well, I've seen commented on quite a bit, which is this libertarian argument that says, well, we've got to have open borders because if you have borders, that's a violation of the non-aggression principle because people are just crossing from one person to another, uh, one place to another, and the, um, uh, the, the, the lines are arbitrary. And yeah, I've, I've made that case years ago that it's moving from one place to another. So I, I, can, I get that, saying, well, people can't cross arbitrary lines in the grounds of violation of the non-aggression principle, right? Is, is that sort of where you're coming from? Well, I mean, that, that's the argument that, that, uh, you, know, that you know, my, 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 my brethren in, in, in that world put up and they said, well, here's that value. I said, well, the other value is, is you know, uh, is supporting a rational, uh, you know, uh, society that supports uh, individual responsibility and property rights. And in the midst of all this, we have a you know a current the current cloud above us is the government, which is you know which is which is stealing and, and appropriating for these people who cross these arbitrary borders. And we say, well, is the first value to pursued the defeat of that structure and the defeat of that mindset that, you know, that the violation of one's property uh, needs to come, needs to be protected first before the protection of the value of free movement. Right. Well, I mean, there is a way of looking at the state in a libertarian context, because we have the state, the state is the primary economic agent in society, both because of its money printing abilities and its control over the economy and its collection of trillions and trillions of dollars of taxes, that the state is the primary agency, economic agency in society. So people, forget about sort of immigration and, and so on, but just look at people who have paid into that system, people who have Let's say you're a 40-year-old, you've been working since you were 15 or 20, so you've got 20, 25 years of paying into a system. Now, the government has used that money. Let's just look at the typical scenario that, that could be defended. The government has used that money to build uh, roads, to build uh, an entire infrastructure, to build plumbing, to, to build schools, to whatever. Like, I mean, just telephone lines, you name it, right? The government has used your money to build this infrastructure, and because you are born there and you have worked there for a certain amount of time, you have a democratic form of ownership in that infrastructure because you have paid for that infrastructure. Now, this is not how the free market would organize it, but given that 
this is the way it's organized now. I mean, we have to deal with the world that is, not the world that we would like. I mean, otherwise, I could be a cancer researcher and say, well, I've cured cancer because in the future, I think cancer will be cured. It's like, well, no, can we deal with the fact that cancer is not cured and, and work from that standpoint, right? So we have to work with the system that is. So in the system that is, the taxation, the redistributionist welfare state, the um, the entire infrastructure of the country is owned by the taxpayers. And given that those, that all of that infrastructure, and this is the, oh, the legal system and the, the prisons and the, the, the police and, and the courts, like all of that, right? It's all owned for, all paid for by the taxpayers, right? So given that the taxpayers own the infrastructure and the resources of the country, then having people move to that country, take advantage of all of those resources without paying one thin dime in taxes, well, that's a form of theft. That's a form of theft. Now, you could, of course, argue, and, and people will, and they'll say, yes, but what about the people, maybe they, they never got a job and they're on disability or they're on welfare. It's like, yeah, okay, I get all of that. What if they're single moms? And I get all of that, uh, absolutely. And what happened was, when these pl- uh, programs, the welfare state and so on, were put into place, the argument was, was, was something like this. This is what people accepted, and this is what they voted for, and this is what people still accept and continue to vote for. What they say is they say the welfare state is for the very small minority of people who, largely through no fault of their own, have ended up economically unproductive. Right, So the welfare state is for some kid born with fetal alcohol syndrome. I mean, the mom's a total jerk for drinking, but it's not the kid's fault that he got fetal alcohol syndrome, or maybe he has reduced IQ because his parents uh, uh, drank, uh, his mom drank while he was pregnant or whatever, or I don't know. Like So the welfare state is put into place for the small minority of people who, through no fault of their own, have ended up economically unproductive, and we have chosen as a voting electorate to not rely on mere charity but to have a redistribution estate. That is what it's for. Now, if people then come to the country and go on welfare while having never paid into the system, then they are a net transfer out of that system, right? It's a net transfer because you're using the power of the state to transfer money from the existing domestic population of a country to your own pocket, And you've never paid into the system. Now, if you think of insurance, insurance you pay into and then you withdraw if there's an emergency, right? You pay into, you know, a thousand bucks a year, 500 bucks a year for your home insurance. And then if you get robbed or your house burns down, then you can pull out of it, right? Now, if you were to go to the insurance company and you were to say, oh, my house burnt down, I need you to buy me a new house. And you faked or somehow convinced them that you were a customer and later it turned out that you weren't a customer, well, you would go to jail for insurance fraud because you never paid into that system, but you're taking out of it. You're taking out of that system. So we would accept that as illegitimate and unjust and immoral to attempt to withdraw from a system you never paid into. We would also, if if the game was somehow rigged, in other words, if the random element was taken out, there was an old Sanford and Son from many years ago which was a fairly dank and low-rent comedy, I think in the 
70s or 80s, I don't know. Anyway, so there was this, uh, uh, Samford was running, uh, it was this guy who ran a junkyard, and he ran a lottery or a, a raffle, right? And he's like, oh, the raffle winner gets a television, right? And it turns out that there was never a television, and no one could win. But because each individual didn't know that no one else won, everyone thought, oh, I'm just unlucky, I lost, but I'm sure somebody won. Now, that, of course, is a form of fraud and a form of theft because you're taking money from people on the promise that they might win a television, but there's no television to be won, so that's, that's fraudulent. In other words, the welfare state was supposed to be for the occasional accident of life. You know, some woman, uh, she has kids, she has a husband. The husband was just on his way to mail out the life insurance and, and he just got hit by a bus and like, wow, that's really bad luck. And so the welfare state was supposed to be very minimal, very minimal, very rare, very, wow, that's way off the beaten path. That's way off any kind of bell curve and we'll take care of all, all of that, right? In other words, the, the, the element of chance had to be there. Now, if the element of chance is removed, in other words, if you somebody moves to America, say, knowing that they're going to take out of the system, that they're not going to pay into it, or at least they're not going to pay into it nearly as much as they're going to take out, then that's no longer a random situation because it's with pre-thought and it's preordained that they're going to be taking more out of the system than they're going to be putting in, right? And, you know, some places like almost three-quarters of immigrants end up on welfare, right? So that is not how the welfare state was designed. Like if the welfare state was sold as, well, anyone can move to America and can take money out of your pocket to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars a year through the power of the state, and it's not for taking care of the poor who are accidentally poor or unjustly poor or randomly poor, but it's going to be a giant magnet for everyone in the world to come and pick your pocket from here to eternity. People would have said, well, that's not what, like, that's not how it's sold. That's not how it's sold, and that's not how people think the welfare state exists. And so if you look at these variety of arguments, right? The, the lottery argument the, or the raffle argument, the insurance argument, the taxpayers own the resources argument, the need for randomness in the welfare state. In other words, if it's preordained, if it's preordained, then that's bad, right? If it's like, you have to have the element of uncertainty for any of these insurance systems to work. And welfare is supposed to be a form of insurance, like unemployment insurance is supposed to be a form of insurance. There has to be a random element, which is why if you take out fire insurance on your business and then you burn your business down, you're fraudulent. If you take out life insurance and you kill yourself, you don't get paid life insurance because that's not a random action. So randomness and uncertainty need to be at the basis of all insurance systems and the way that the welfare state was sold to the general population was as a form of insurance. A form of insurance. In Canada, it's a social insurance number. S-I-N, social insurance number social security number it's supposed to provide you security well you don't sit there burn your own business down try and get a million dollars out of the insurance company and say hey man i'm just trying to get some security it's like no you're being fraudulent so if somebody enters into the situation of taking money from the general purse through welfare and they did so knowing ahead of time that they were going to be taking more out than they put in or taking out everything and putting in nothing then that is not what the welfare state is for, and it is not how it was sold, and it can't possibly operate that way. If you 
as an insurance company allow people to burn down their own businesses and then you pay them five times what that business is worth, you will be out of business in about five minutes. It can't work that way. It can't work that way. So you need a population of similar abilities, similar ambitions, similar intelligence, you know, in in the bell curve, just in general. You need that. And you cannot have a big mountain of money that everyone in the world can come to because that's not what it was for. That's not how it can survive. And that's not how it was sold. So I think that there's a form of fraud in all of that. Does that, I'm sorry for that long sort of response. It's a big, it's a big topic, but just the idea, well, you know, just crossing borders is a violation of the non-aggression principle. It's like, no, no, no. Coming in and pillaging the infrastructure built up by other people's tax money, coming in, knowing ahead of time that you're going to be using the power of the state to transfer people's resources to your pocket from their own families. And if they don't pay for what you want, they're going to jail. All of that is a far more egregious violation of the non-aggression principle. And of course, yes, it would be great. No welfare state. Yeah, I'm much more open. It's like when I was in Hong Kong. I mean, you should watch my Hong Kong documentary. You can find it at freedomain.com forward slash documentaries, Hong Kong fight for freedom. They have no welfare state and uh, it's very easy to move there. And that's totally fine with me. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, I mean, as a, as you know, America was prior to, you know, prior to, say, the 1920s and, and the establishment of the, the first you know, federal nose under the tent uh, of Social Security that there was no welfare state. Certainly not when when my ancestors came here, there was no welfare state, and they were immigrants, and so they just had to work. And and it's interesting that you draw the you made the distinction about um, thinking of thinking of the existing social fabric as an insurance policy, which I do agree, and you combine that with the general. Uh, uh, ignorance of the American public of the role of insurance, especially when you bring in the other big topic of health care, the difference between health insurance versus health care, right, is that, is that, that, that that's another area which was blurred. So it's not crossing of borders, it's pillaging, and it's not medical insurance if you're always going to know you're going to use the doctor versus insuring for those things which have, you know, as they used to be prior to uh, some of the government regulation of of only insuring people people could choose to insure for for catastrophic illnesses and then pay out of their pocket, you know, with with their physicians for things which you know they were going to have a checkup every year. You can't insure against a checkup every year because it's a certainty. Well, and yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why and that that analysis. Both those two things are the same problem. The yeah, same and this is one of the reasons. Of, Sorry, of, go ahead. Of the concept. Yeah, so this this is one of the reasons why governments have such opposition to replacing the welfare state with charity, because you can't buy votes with charity. You can buy votes with the welfare state. You can dangle all of this money, and people all over the world can come and and feast on the American taxpayer or the Western taxpayer, and you can buy votes with the welfare state. But can you imagine some charity calls you up and says, well, you know— there's a whole bunch of people we want to bring in from country X, Y, Z. They don't speak the language. They don't have any job skills. And they've got a lot of health problems, a lot of dental problems. They're going to have a whole bunch of kids statistically, much higher than the, the average. So, you know, can you, can you please donate to this cause? Well, I mean, maybe a few people would, some pathological altruists or whatever. But I think most people would be, hmm... 
Now, that's, uh, I don't really see that that's going to reduce the burden of poverty in society as a whole. And I got my own kids, my own family to take care of. And my mom's getting ill. She's going to need some uh, colostomy bags or something. like. So the government can force the population for pay to pay for all of this stuff, the refugees and the migrants and so on. But if you had a private charity... I mean, private charity calls people up and asks for that. They'll say, wait, have we solved all of the problem of homelessness in the country already? But nope. <laughs> oh, do, do all the children who need health care have it? Nope. Do all the people who have dental issues and who are poor, have they had all their teeth fixed? Nope. It's like, well, I think we should probably focus on that just a little bit more than we should focus on, you know, 5,000 people from country XYZ because we still have issues in our own country, right? So a private charity cannot be leveraged by the state to buy votes and to gerrymander people with, with bring in people who vote from the left and so on, which is why whenever you say, well, private charity should replace the welfare state, I mean, all of the state-driven demagogues just completely freak out. It's like, what do you mean? You're going to take away our power to buy votes with your money? That's terrible. That's monstrous. <laughs> Appalling. Can't be allowed. Anyway, so I'm going to move on to another caller, but thank you for uh, the question. I hope that this helps. That is not my answer there, of course. is not completely definitive, and it's not exhaustive. That would be a whole book or a series of books, but that's sort of where <laughs> my thinking is uh, to start with, and I really do appreciate the call. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, man. All right. Should we, uh, should we roll the dice? Auto screening skipped by caller. Dun, dun, dun. What does this mean? Let's see here. Is your name Ian? Are you with me, brother? Yes, I, I am here. Hello, Stefan. How you doing? Doing well. So I uh, actually called in about ten minutes ago, and uh, sure enough, your topic is sort of along the lines of what I wanted to uh, kind of, I guess, discuss. Uh, forgive me if I'm not uh, up to speed with, you know, where the law is at right now, because I'm not from Michigan. Uh, but I saw some things gaining traction online about a, a law called a uh, dad by default is what it's uh, called. It's by called dad by default. Right yes, dad yeah. by default. <clears throat> and uh, the current structure of uh, sort of the the way that they do welfare is for the the mother of children, if she's going to use children to get welfare payments, she has to have a father uh, named for the children. So if she puts your name, even if you are not the father, uh, you are required by law, uh, by default, to um, pay child support. And they have a limited amount of time where you can, you can appeal this a uh, certain number of months, but if you miss... Uh, the court date, or if you, you fail to get the notice, or maybe you fail to prepare, uh, you know, to show like a DNA test uh, during, you know, that, that time period, um, you're stuck paying child support after that. Even if you can prove months later that the child is not yours, uh, you're still on the hook. Well, that is, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's pretty... That's pretty appalling. Now, I've got something here. Is this relatively recent? I've just looked up something here from 2017. Is it more recent than that, do you know? Yeah, it's, I've, I've seen a, a couple videos uh, more recent than that, um, sort of like uh, panel panels of uh, unfortunate uh, 
men who have unfortunately had some type of, I mean, maybe some romantic relations with uh, women who then had a kid and then they just name drop them on some paperwork and then they ended up having to, uh, having to pay child support uh, for kids that are not theirs at all. Some people are saying that they didn't even have any sexual contact with these women uh, at all. And then no sexual contact. The woman just picked up, their uh, name out of a hat. Hey, I went to high school with this guy. <laughs> right, exactly. Something like that? Yes. Yes. All right. So what have we got? That's 2015. And uh, are you a dad by default? The child support hustle. <laughs> that sounds scientific. All right. Let's see here. Okay. So let's yeah. see here. Uh, this was from 2017 as well. So, um, oh, recently adopted by Detroit, Michigan. Were... Uh, dad's, dad's by default, a term created by government, but recently adopted by Detroit, Michigan native Connell Alexandria. Okay, so let's see here. When a man is found to be dad by default in a child support case, there is a specific protocol that is supposed to take place before the case ever makes its way to a courtroom. Uh, the Office of Child Support Enforcement Agency. Well, that's a chillingly postmodernist, Dante-esque. Sounds, sounds very, very scary. <laughs> very scary. Like, you never want that. You never want Oxy in your mailbox. Like, that's never going to be a good day at all. At all. Can I just get something from the IRS instead? Would that be all right? Let's see. A branch of the Health and Human Services Administration is tasked with overseeing the child support programs nationally. A default judgment is a decision made by the tribunal when the defendant fails to respond. The failure to respond is only relevant if the defendant has been properly notified about the child support complaint. The service process is so essential in a lawsuit that if not performed properly, a lawsuit cannot proceed. All right. Um, an issue that almost so, always arises saying, a, a issue that almost always arises when men are declared a dad by default in a child support order can be the amount of the order. Okay, so it does sound, unless this has changed, it does sound like they got to serve you and you got to you got to reply to this, right? I mean, um, consider another Michigan right. resident. Oh, here we go. Hang on, hang on. I'm so sorry. I, I keep giving you pauses yeah. and then, then talking over you. I, I apologize for that. Child support arrears in any case can be You're detrimental, sure. but are especially damaging to dads by default when he is forced into debt for a child he did not biologically father. The civil rights violation is suffered by men who may have done nothing more than to meet a woman, consider another Michigan resident who is currently being forced to pay nearly $100,000 in child support arrears for a child that he not only did not father, but to a woman that he never had sex with, past, present, or otherwise. So $100,000 of debt without even the 12 minutes of, of you know fun, right? There are thousands, <laughs> if not millions, of violations to civil rights, due process, and equal protections to accompany personal horror stories, all, all attributable to the current child support system. These situations are reported by biological fathers who have been arrested. They are not arrested for willfully failing to pay child support, which is the actual law, but because they were financially unable to pay the exorbitant amount of debt. It becomes an even bigger tragedy when a dad by default is arrested for being too poor to pay for the child support debt. So, yeah, I guess uh, what you're saying is the woman can just say so-and-so was the dad and here it says the you know they got to find him they got to serve him and so on but if for whatever reason there's no response then this guy uh is is on the hook this guy you know being hit for a hundred thousand us maybe he doesn't have that kind of money that's that's a hell of a lot of money he's not he's hit for that kind of money and then what happens well he can't pay it and after jail he goes 
for the child of a woman he may never even have had sex with. Is that This is the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? Y- yes, yes, that is exactly uh, exactly what I wanted to, uh, <laughs> to kind of talk about. Oh, it's, um, I mean, it's absolutely monstrous and, and, and kind of inevitable. I mean, somebody's got to pay for these kids. I had, had an interesting exchange on Twitter the other day. So I, I retweeted something from a while ago where I was talking about moving children from liabilities to assets has fundamentally reshaped society in a terrible way. Because when children are liabilities, then a woman needs to find a good provider to pay the bills. When child, children are transformed from liabilities into assets through the power of the welfare state, then women don't need to be responsible in who they choose to be the father of their children, right? So no. who's, who's going to pay? For the hundred grand it takes to raise a kid, who's going to pay? Well, the government sure as hell doesn't want to pay it, right? I mean, they'd they want to collect the money for the welfare state, but they don't actually want to hand the money for the welfare state out to the poor. I mean, that, the whole point is to use the poor to raise a trillion dollars, and then maybe you pay twenty two hundred billion of that to the poor, and you keep eight hundred billion of it for yourself, because it's about twenty percent, if I remember rightly, that the government pays out to welfare recipients based upon the money they take in for welfare. So you don't want to actually give money to the poor based on the welfare state. You want to keep that money for yourself. And so you'd much rather stiff some working stiff for having a stiffness in vicinity of woman who later has a child. It's absolutely monstrous. Of course, if the child is not yours, not only should the man not pay, but if the woman claims that a man is the father of her child and he's not, well, that's fraud. And it's a very egregious and monstrous fraud. And the man could end up being in jail based upon her accusations. And if you, you know, one of the old ways in which justice should work is if you accuse someone of a crime falsely, then you get the punishment that would have been meted out on him. So if you accuse a guy of raping you and and he would have got 10 years and it's false and you didn't, he didn't rape you, then you get 10 years. If you accuse him of shoplifting, then whatever, you understand, right? So that's the way it should work. But of course, the problem is that women who are single moms have hostages, and those hostages are their children, right? And, you know, I'm not saying all single moms, but, you know, when it comes to who who pays, right? Because there's this weird thing that goes on with women. I don't know. I guess it's not weird or whatever. Tell me what you think in a sec, right? But it's this weird thing that goes on with women, right? Because let's say the welfare state is going to get cut, because it is. I mean, it is. It's unsustainable, right? The welfare state is going to get stuck. And women say, well, how are my children going to eat? And, you know, suddenly everybody has to solve this problem. And it's like, I'm, you, know, good, you know, you're an adult. You live in a f- relatively free society. You figure it out, right? Figure it out. But there's this thing where women say, well, you know, my, my child needs this. How's, how's my child going to get this if the government doesn't provide it or whatever, right? And it's, it's unique to women. Because, you know, when there was a war, say, the Second World War or Vietnam War, some guy, he's running a business, right? And he gets drafted. Now, he doesn't just sit there and say, well, who's going to run my business, <laughs> right? Who, who's going to, who's going to, who's going to, yeah. Fulfill my orders. Who's going to deal with my customers? Who's going to run the paycheck system? Who's going to, who's going to, like, how am I? And people are like, yeah, you know, you're an adult male. It's like, you got drafted. You'll figure it out, right? <laughs> but women, right. You know, and you could, you know, it's, I think, possible to make the argument that 
being cut, having welfare cuts is not really as bad as being drafted and being sent into the Bataan death march and ending up in some John Grisham novel, right? So women can say, well, how's this to, how are my kids going to get their medicine if you're not, right? It's like, well, you're, we don't, we don't do that with men. When men have problems, like this guy's got $100,000, like, how am I supposed to pay this $100,000? I, I never even had sex with them. It was like, oh, well, too bad, man. You go to jail, right? I go to jail. Who's going to run my business? We we just we don't give that same. Well, we got to we got to rush in and solve your problems. We don't give that to men. We give that to women. We don't give that to men. For men, it's like suck it up and figure it out. For women, I guess you can say something. The two terms might be related, but that's that's a weird thing that that happens. And this is one of the reasons why, when women have this amount of economic power, when they have that amount of sexual power, when they have this amount of accusatory power, when they have this amount of third party get their boyfriend to beat someone up power, plus you give them massive political power through living longer and voting more than men. It's like, I'm sorry, that's just too much power. That's just too much power. It, it, it corrupts and it infantilizes. And, you know, if, if a woman had sex with some guy or, or she doesn't even know who the father of her child is. <laughs> she, would, she would give a false name um, you know, I, I guess she she uh, she picks the she richest guy. She doesn't know who, so she picks the she picks the who who would be the best to provide. I guess yeah, who's got some money? Even in full. yeah. Who 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 pulled up in a car that wasn't seven different colors? You know, who who had a nice pair of unscuffed boots? Who 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 uh, who had a tie yeah. on? Yeah, that's the dad. And yeah, I, no, know, it's I monstrous. Kinda, you know, you 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 uh. You sort of said, you know, that, that society reacts to, to women differently. And I'm all for, you know, if, if, if you're a man and, and you, you are going to play a dangerous game and you're going to, you know, uh, get a woman pregnant, I think that you should bear some financial responsibility. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pro child support. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, you, you made the baby, you need to take care of it. But I think that, like you're saying, the accusatory power is way out of proportion there. And, well, uh, okay, but hang on, hang on. You know, there are some guys... Hang on. But but the woman right. has the right to give up her parental obligations, right? She can get an abortion. She can put yeah. the child up for adoption. She can... Like any number of things, right? So the woman has the perfect mm-hmm. right to give up the child, and she doesn't even need to go through a formal process. Like the woman can literally take her child... She can take her baby to the police station. She can take it to a fire station. She can leave it on a doorstep. She can hang it from a tree in a basket so it shows up in a nursery rhyme, right? The woman can just wander in to any state body, hand over her kid, and the kid will be taken, and there'll be no negative repercussions, no questions asked, right? So she can terminate either the pregnancy or her parental obligations with no input from the man, right? Pretty much, yeah. So why don't men have the same right? Well, I guess, uh, I guess it it it, uh, it doesn't come come out of men at the end of the day. So, I mean, I guess biologically, uh, we're kind of maybe limited. Uh, but I know what you're saying. It's it's kind of unfair legally. It doesn't seem well, yeah uh, legally. If, it, it doesn't. It, it, it's it's. If the woman can terminate the entire parental situation with no input from the man, 
then, you know, there's a pretty strong case to be made that a man should be able to sign a piece of paper that says I give up all parental rights and obligations in the same way that the woman can do. Now, if you're going to say, well, women should have different rights than men. Okay, well, that's that, that's a different argument. But then let's not pretend we're aiming for any kind of equality here. Like that's that's the thin edge of the wedge. Say, okay, well, as you say, it comes out of the woman. So they should be able to terminate parental responsibilities with no repercussions, no questions asked. But the man is on the hook should she decide to keep it without his choice, without his input, maybe even without his sperm. It's like, okay, well, you can make that case. <laughs> but then let's not pretend we're aiming for Then, Then you can't complain about the wage gap, right? Because then it's like we're not aiming for any kind of equality here. And once we've thrown equality out the window, then it gives people a huge sense of relief. Or well, maybe not for the guy who gets hit with a $100 sperm, sperm jacking bill or whatever, a $100,000 sperm jacking bill. <laughs> but let's at least say, okay, well, so we're not aiming for any kind of equality here. Let's not pretend that we are. In which case it's like, well, there are fewer female engineers than male. It's like, yeah, but you all can terminate parental responsibility, no problem. Uh, men can't. So, you know, it balances out. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, it does. Yeah, but it's but, um, it's yeah, it's really you know, rough. In, it's really rough. All right. In some of those situations, you know. No, go ahead. In some of those situations, I just wanted to you know kind of touch on just uh, briefly. Some some of the men were moving from different addresses. You know, a lot of people may not have their paperwork up to date, and then they miss the notice, or they're you know in prison, or you know they're they have no they have no knowledge of the woman even doing that, and then they get hit. So. Yeah, I think that's fightable if they weren't served. I think uh, if you if you are served, for God's sakes, call a lawyer and get it sorted out. Because yeah, as, <laughs> as you point out, now, I mean, f- false paternity is is just about the worst thing that that you can do to a man. Uh, it's so incredibly, un- uh, unbelievably uh, destructive, and uh, uh, so that's that's a whole other topic. But yeah, I mean, th- this stuff is dangerous and it's out there. You know, here, here's the thing. Here's the plus that can come out of this, right? You know, maybe I'm a bit too much of an optimist. I'm always looking for the upside, right? But here's the plus that can come out of it. For God's sake, stop hanging around any kind of social circle where this might happen. Like, just, mm. you know, you know how they have these uh, inflatable um, life vests, right? Like you're sinking or whatever. You pull it and it just fills with air and pops you up to the surface, Right. So if you're down here in this grotto-based, tree-root, dank, glowing, crystal underworld where this is even remotely possible, get philosophy, listen to this show, elevate the hell out of yourself and pull the damn ripcord on your life vest so that you can float up to the surface so that you're dealing with sane and decent human beings. Like, just don't, I'm not blaming the victims here, right? But, But don't even be in the social circle or the environment of people who would even consider doing something like this and you say well those women are everywhere it's like no they're not no they're really not so <laughs> you know just it, it's a cautionary tale about all of your social environments and how to to hopefully get the hell away from people who would do anything like this all right well thanks for the call i really really do appreciate it uh, i'm afraid i'm dropping you because somebody wants to talk about sexual fetishes hello you're on the air you do in fact have my Attention, can you hear me? I don't want this to be the worst transcription error ever, ever known to man. Can you hear me? Uh, caller, I just put you on the line. Hello? Hi, how you doing? Oh, wow. You actually picked me. I certainly did. Are you currently in a furry suit? Oh, thank you. No, nothing okay. like that. What's on your mind? Oh, my 
my God, what isn't on my mind these days, Steph? It's very nice to talk to you. Happy holidays. Thank Christmas. you very much. I will beg you to narrow it down just a smidge because, you know, time time is pressing. But go ahead. Okay. Uh, first of all, um, I know this is a little off topic, but I tried using your subscriber phone number and the PIN number didn't work. I just want to let you know that. I left a message in the comments. Oh, my apologies. Uh, I will check that out. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Subscribestar, subscribestar.com forward slash free domain. Um, I, I put out early shows there, some exclusive shows there, and you also get a private PIN for the call-in show, which gets you to the head of the queue. And so please, please help out the show at freedomain.com forward slash donate. It gets you straight there, or you can go to subscribestar.com forward slash free domain and check it out there. I'm so sorry about that. I, I'm glad we got through to you. And uh, thank you, of course, for your support. And uh, I'm all ears. Um, can you call me Trevor? It's an alias because it's kind of, you know, this is Absolutely. Something, something embarrassing. Um, okay, so I figured I've got a lot on my mind these days with everything. But uh, I was wondering maybe if you'd like to take a stab at trying to diagnose somewhat bizarre but fetish sexual fetishes wouldn't be the first time hopefully won't be the last so yes go for it man anyway um i'm very very lucky in a lot of ways because i don't i'm not into furries or anything like that um it's oh geez it's kind of embarrassing i've only told very few people of this the ladies in my life but it's uh essentially the first one would be and i guess i'm very lucky that i like to wear suits shirts and ties and look very very good and I get a sexual rush from that. <laughs> and so, not only that, I'm very, okay. very, very attracted to women that wear shirts and ties. Oh, you're attracted to women. Sorry, I attracted. thought you were kind of trolling me a bit there. Like, my sexual fetish is to no. dress in clothes that women find very attractive. It's like, I don't think that's a fetish. I think I that's know, just right? common but sense. I find it. I find it attractive. So like you find it attractive when like, a woman oh. is wearing a man's suit. Is that right? Well, it's mostly, it's mostly centered around the shirt and tie. Okay. Is it and is it done up like full on neck choking half news fifties Don Draper style or is it kind of half undone shirt kind of open tie hanging? No, it's more like done up, definitely done up. Okay, uh, does it matter and, the length of the woman's of that, hair? Uh, not really. I prefer you know medium to long hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I definitely. I don't. I kind of know where you're going with this, but it's it's definitely the uh, the feminine look if you could take like the feminized look of uh of the shirt suit tie thing right okay like, now men in suits and shirts do not turn me on at all yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> i, I at get all. that i get that it's only women yeah and is it is there a and jacket on top of that is there a could, jacket component required or is it like a phil collins album like no nope. jacket required for this turn on <laughs> nope no it's all just uh different variations of that and when did you first notice this Adolescence, yeah, probably before puberty. Before puberty, but yeah, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, and the other thing I want to like add on to it to make this even more bizarre and complicated, dude. Is, I know, uh, I, I know, like, you got the bizarre thing going and all that. Listen, nothing human is alien to me. That's it's totally fine. It's totally in my wheelhouse. <laughs> You're a human being. You have this particular preference. It's not like you know I need to strangle a carp fish to get off. You know, like. This is this is just visual, and it, it's God. it's not as freaky as you think. So, at least from my perspective, so go for it. It's a, it's definitely unique. It's not the worst fetish someone could have. That's for sure. 
Uh, but on top of that, I've also been into, I also like bondage. So mix that with BDSM. But okay, not so like hang on. You, you said something before shit. bondage. Was it light select bondage or what was that? I didn't quite catch that phrase. Oh, just, oh, yeah, more like light BDSM bondage. Not really, not leather, not like whips, not anything too crazy like latex, but just like, you know, light to medium bondage. Do you mean like tying, really someone like to a, tying someone to tying someone to the headboard with stockings, that kind of stuff? Oh, well, I've got, I've got more equipment than that, but yeah, it could be variations of just rope. <laughs> Amateur, and... right? Okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, but, so it's light bondage, but without pain, but just with restraint, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not really, I'm not into, like, spanking, but, you know, like, I do have a girlfriend. Uh, she likes, she is to- totally compatible with me. I love her very much. And she's into the same things I am. Very, very lucky, very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she likes, she likes a little rough as you know, a lot of women tend to do that, but nothing. I've never met one, but I've, I've heard, I've heard tell I've, I've never honestly never met a woman, uh, in, in that, that way inclined, but, uh, I've, I've heard tell and, and, uh, I'm perfectly willing to accept it. So, but, but the rough stuff is not, it's again, it's not any pain inflection or anything. It's just restraint and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Is there anything else that you want to mention? I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to have premature elaboration person. on this. So, uh, <laughs> Pre- if there's anything else that you wanted to mention, I'm happy to hear. You, 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 you sly guy. <laughs> uh, and I really like. I guess on top of the bondage thing, I really like like ball gags as well. You know what ball gags are? I have a feeling we're slowly escalating to a scene out of Pulp Fiction here. So, okay, one oh, more God, thing. Giant good, cranes. Not, with, okay. I did not enjoy watching that. <laughs> okay, a ball, a no, ball that, gag. I don't really it. know much about that. What's the story with that? that they, you put a rubber ball in your mouth and strap it around so you're gagged, and I like the way it looks and the way it feels. But that kind of goes in with the, the BDSM part. But that's not painful. It's just inhibiting i suppose like you, it's sort yeah. of like the taking a hard pass on oral there okay got it got it uh, any anything else now's the time to open no, the closet no. wide uh, we got bondage suits <laughs> nope, ball gag what else that's that's those are the big three i'd say yeah nothing else good so, okay got it got it very tame well i very, you know i'm, I'm not going to put this on a sliding scale um but uh you know Thank it's you. It does not seem like it's nothing that's going to get you arrested in Idaho. So, all right. No, no. I'm very fortunate in that respect. Nothing illegal, nothing weird, right. nothing, you know, with fecal player gross shit like that. So Yeah, let's not, let's not even in, in, our, in our mind's eye get, go to that, I believe, toilet trained at gunpoint German dungeon place. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your parents' relationship. Did they get along well? Strange. Did they fight? Was it aggressive? Was it peaceful? What was the story? Uh, not, not great. Um, I'm, I'm honestly surprised I didn't get divorced. Um, my dad was, uh, it was very tense a lot of times. Uh, my mom was very sort of passive, but the, uh, the phrase like kind of walking around on eggshells around my dad was very, uh, was common. Right. Uh, Go ahead. Well, um, what would they? What was? What was? What were the eggshells? What were the? What were the 
landmines or the, the pressure points for them in terms of com- conflict? Um, I guess like my dad was, uh, he, he held a, a lot of like pain throughout his life. Like he had a lot of, uh, he had depression. His mood would be up and down. Like he would be hypocritical. Uh, I don't really know if I really loved him because of his, uh, I don't really, was he like, was was he kind of like sarcastic and stuff like that? I don't know. No, not sarcastic. Just uh, like mean spirited, and just like he would be in a bad mood, but he wouldn't realize how that affected the family. Well, do you think he didn't and realize it, it would, or he did realize it but didn't mind or kind of enjoyed it? I don't think he enjoyed it. I think I don't. I don't know how much control he had over it. So he wasn't I sadistic think, uh, that way, like like enjoyed causing people discomfort mm, through his bad mood. No. Okay. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it sadistic. No, I think he was in a lot of pain. And that pain came out. Why was he in ways. pain? Like, do you think? He would get beaten down, and pardon me. Why was he in so much pain? Do you think? Um, I would imagine, based on the things I've learned in the last couple of years, that it definitely had something to do with his relationship with uh, his mother. Um, I don't think my grandmother was particularly. Uh, a good person, and I think that trauma kind okay, of... I need you to, just in the interest through. of time, you, you're giving me, like, with this kind of stuff, I don't think she was a super one. Like, just give me the straight-up goods. Like, was she was she mean? Was she vicious? Just... I only saw her good side, and so did my mom. Um, but I, I, do, I don't believe she was a loving, the kind of loving mother that, you know, any young man needs. And I think he held a lot of resentment. I think perhaps that his hypocritical and angry nature was passed on from her to him. But what evidence do you have that she was that way? No, I'm not like a court of law thing, but you have this perspective, and I'm not sure where it comes from. Yes, I, I believe it comes from just the analysis of how my father behaved. Like, where did he he learn this? Behavior? Oh, so he's and like the from, sh- his behavior is like the shadow cast by her behavior but you didn't see her behavior directly but you know there's something there because <clears> there's a shadow is that right that would probably be the most accurate because remember like she loved loved me loved my brother loved my mom even but um i think perhaps in in the past she wasn't very nice to my my father but she had a very positive and tried to maintain a very positive relationship with my mom was and your I father was your father controlling? Betrayal. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And what do you mean? So, yeah. Like a little bit compared to what? Or what would be examples of his controlling side? Um, when it comes to like maintaining like uh, a clean house or doing a job well done or to like nothing really lazy. Um, it was like his way or the highway. Like if he wanted to use the computer, you got to get off the computer. Right. And did I think what, was he sort of bossy bullying towards your mom? Because you said she was kind of passive and walked on eggshells. Yeah, I'd say it was it was more of um, a bullying kind of thing, but not, not necessarily bullying, but like just you could you don't know what kind of mood he was in and if he was going to be rational or not. Yep. And he would he just he had a lot of he had a lot of anger, and I, that got passed off passed down to me. I believe as well, because I have depression as well. I, I take medication for depression, full disclosure. All right. 
And did your father tell your mom to shut up a lot? Or be quiet or stop talking um, or be silent or? No. Okay. No. So when they would get into conflicts, how would she handle it? Like if he's in a bad mood and he's criticizing, uh -huh. th th there's a spot on the carpet or this glass is not clean or nothing's in its proper place or whatever he's doing, right? Like how would your mom react to it? Right. Uh, I describe uh, describe my father's behavior as passive aggressive in a lot of cases, and in her reaction would be being hurt. Um, sometimes it got extreme; she would retaliate. Uh, nothing, nothing too severe, but kind of like shouting and fighting and things like that. Um, it would just be like a fight, and then it'd be just tense, very tense in the house for days at a time. And then things would relax, and then we'd think everything is okay, and then. Eventually, there'd be some other outside force that was probably my dad's life that, you know, would trigger a bad mood and then it would, you know, get pushed onto the family. Now, when she retaliated, though, she would retaliate verbally fighting back, right? Well, one, one specific instance or two I can think of was my dad was sitting uh, actually right where I am right now. And he was going through mail and he was in a bad mood and... My mom was sitting right across and he started like throwing mail at her, like literally throwing envelopes. <laughs> that's, that's, in terms of the double told, use of the word she, mail, that's actually quite powerful. Oh my God. My God. That's why you remember it so much, right? <laughs> I doubt it. It's just one of the moments where he threw something and then she said, don't do that again. And then he did it again. Yeah. There was another moment, um, there was another moment when I remember he was in the washroom and I don't exactly what it escalated to, but I remember hearing some like some, some fighting kind of noises and I came around the corner and I had this like moment of being a man and I looked at them and I said, what is going on here? And I was just a kid and they had gotten to like a physical push fight. And she had like kind of scuffed her scuffed her waist against one of the like uh, wall banister kind of things, the uh, trim of yeah, the wall. Yeah. That was that was probably the that was the extent of the physical fighting. He wasn't he never like hit or beat. There wasn't any anything like that. Right, right. No, he's it was a mostly guy. this yeah, like sort of yeah. It was more of a, a, a this this negative presence of just someone in, who's in a bad mood and. Did your mother, kind of sorry to interrupt, did, did they stay married? Uh, they did, but it might be important, it may or may not be important, but uh, Steph, uh, five years ago, he uh, he actually took his life. Oh my so gosh. Yeah, he, uh, he hung himself. Yeah. I was the one to uh, come home from work and find him. How, how old, I think I was how old was he? My, 65, I believe, 66, something like that. Oh, and you found him. And, and you, remember, in the, you said that you're in the same spot now, like you're living in the same house? Yes. I am so sorry, man. I, I moved out, like, yeah, I, I know. I appreciate that stuff. I, I it, it does upset me a little bit, but he was in a lot of pain. And it just, I don't know. Yeah, well, happened. some of it's self-inflicted. Like, the only person that knows what happens. Yeah, oh, guaranteed. Um but his body was his body was malfunctioning for years, 
And when I say malfunctioning, I mean things like he had Crohn's disease for a very long time. Oh yeah, I know someone yeah, with that. Getting, that's that's a hell of a thing. That's like that's like demonic possession of your intestine. It's horrible. He's had yeah, he had multiple operations to have parts of his intestines removed because they were eating itself. Right. And uh, he got osteoporosis in his older elder age, and I think he had he was getting some like cancer in his ear. Uh, he was on all sorts of medications. His uh, his bladder stopped functioning, and he had to wear a catheter. That really, I think, that really affected him. Right, like a twenty four hour catheter all the time. So he was just not in a good place. He was in a lot of pain. Was he like an unhealthy guy over the course of his life? Like, did he smoke, drink, no exercise, or what? Um, he wasn't morbidly obese or anything like that. He did do a little bit of wine drinking for a couple of years, but he wasn't an alcoholic. And he smoked a little bit like all young people do in like the 70s and 80s. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Cold yeah, turkey, no he never smoked again. So, uh, no, I, I almost want to theorize that a lot of his physical pain was a manifestation of his uh, spiritual pain. Well, even when he was, was younger, if he had Crohn's, I mean, that's going to make, that's chronic pain, right? I mean, it's nasty pain too. Yeah, it's it's terrible. And it can hit anyone at any time. And we don't know like how it happens or how to treat it. It's it's insane. It's an insane disease. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Now, and, uh, I think my dad felt very uh, victimized. He felt like you know, one of the people that God chose to beat down until they were nothing. And he was an atheist, by the way. Let me point that out as well. Okay. So, with all due respect to the horrible tragedy of your dad, let's get to your bull gag. I know this is like not the easiest transition to make, and I, I apologize <laughs> okay. for the jarring uh, okay. nature of it, but let's make sure we can get to that. So when you're – did your mom's fighting back or retaliating, did it ever solve anything or did it make things worse? I think it kept the status quo. I don't think there was any – there was like a little bit of improvements – and a little bit of, you know, it was like a, it was like a sine wave, like it would go up and down. It wouldn't go too, too extreme in any directions. Okay. So let me ask you this. Your dad's crouching <clears throat> and grumping around and your mom kind of blows up at him, let's say, right? Or she gets, she retaliates. Were you like, how did you feel as a child in the moment? Because I, I you said your mom was passive a lot of times, right? So there were times when right. she fought back. How did you feel about her fighting back? So she'd fight back, and would you sit there and say, oh, good, he's going to get a taste of his own medicine? No. Or did you sit there and say, oh, man, this is terrible, he's just going to make things worse? Or, or was it something else? No, I'd say it was more in the second category of just like, my parents are fighting, this is hurting my soul. This so yeah, good. I know something's wrong. Right. So you kind of wanted your mom to hold her tongue, I guess, if it wasn't really going to solve anything and it was just going to make things more tense for a while, right? I suppose, but no, no. Listen, really don't don't let me put just... a single syllable in your mouth. Like, t tell me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm not. You know, I I don't want you to. <laughs> obviously, I you know don't don't comply with me did for I, heaven's sakes, right? I so want my mom. I never looked at it that way. I never, I never but you said it made the house way. tense, right? It made it made the house tense when your mom fought back, but it didn't change anything, right? No. So, because I mean, she couldn't fix my dad. 
No, no, of course, of course. Right. Now, tell me about the moment when you said you, you heard your parents fighting in the other room and you came in and you said, like, I was just a boy and you were kind of doing a man's job in a way to try and stop the fighting, right? Correct, yeah. How old were you then? I had to put on my man face and just, oh, geez, I wish I could say. It must have been around my early teens, something around there, yeah. All right. And early to mid-teens. And how did that play out? It was funny because it was almost like a teacher catching two kids fighting, <laughs> and they both try and, like, explain themselves. It was his, he started it, really, okay. The, yeah, like, he pushed me like this, and... That was basically it. It wasn't a very long conversation, but that would be the way I would describe it. Like, I caught two kids fighting. Did your, what did your father do for a living? Um, he, uh, well, he was, in the last years of his life, he was an a, a independent entrepreneur. He did body work on vehicles. He removed, like, uh, dents and imperfections and body panels on automobiles and cars. Mm-hmm. But he, he had been... He had been retired for a couple of years because of his health problems before he uh, he died. And when you were a kid, what did he do? Oh, he did the the body work. Oh, the body work. When okay, so so he, so he himself didn't wear a suit. But what did your I assume what did your mom do? My mom is in banking or wasn't banking. She's retired, but she worked for the bank. And did you visit her at work? I mean, I assume you did from time to time. Probably wasn't too common, but you would see her at bank at the bank, right? Yeah, sure. Now, what did you think of the banking environment? Don't worry, this is all going to make sense. So, I think, I hope. <laughs> Cross your fingers, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just tormenting you, and you might enjoy that. But um, just keep digging. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> when you would visit your mom at the bank, what did? How did the environment strike you? Did was it? Good, bad, indifferent? What did you think? Um, pretty indifferent. It was very kind of boring <laughs> being in a bank because you're like, what do I do here? There's nothing to do. Right. Uh, yeah, mostly just indifferent, yeah. Did you know anyone at your mom's bank? Or was it, you know, just here, here kid, here's a comic or something? What do you mean by no? Like her coworkers or friends? coworker or boss or you know any anyone at the bank that you might have known as a kid? Well, she's very she's very like friendly and whatnot. So I mean, yeah, of course I'd, I'd meet other other uh, people she worked with. Sure, they all knew each other by name. She still maintained friendships with several of these people. Was your mom so, yeah, sure. different yeah. in the banking environment than she was at home? Because you said she's kind of friendly at, in the bank, but at home she's kind of tense, right? Yeah, no, she was, um, from what I understand, she was very, very competent and an excellent asset to any workplace that had her. Incredibly so, competent. And okay, just, this is really fascinating, right? So your dad yeah. is all like, you got to do a good job or you got to be competent. You might... But he was hammering out dents in a car and she was doing some pretty high level banking, right? Yeah. Right. So your mother. Professionally, well, let's, let's sort of go high level. Let's say like mid level to no, 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 but higher level, level than your dad hammering on a yeah. car, right? Yeah. So you understand that in your parents' relationship, your mom wore the suit. Uh, yes, yes. In, in a matter of speaking, sure. 
she didn't really wear business suits per se. She was no, more, I get like, that. Wore dresses but, and things like that. But yeah. So, do, do you do you get the connection back to where we started? Hit me. Well, I mean, not, not in. That's, that's <laughs> it's all right. Thing. We're a long way away. So, in your parents' <laughs> relationship, your mom wore the suit. And what do you like to see a woman in? Like suit, shirt, tie. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to see my mom in that, though. No, I get all that. I, I understand. Listen, I know that. I'm not Freudian that way at all. At all. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about, though. I just want to make it clear for your listeners. Yeah, listen, and I, I'm not I'm not a billion, I'm a billion miles away from that. So I'm not talking about anything Oedipal or anything like that. What I'm talking about, though, is that our parents imprint upon us sexual success. Right. So in other words, your father, by having you, is your primary programming for what a successful male is like. And your mother, by having you, is a, your primary programming for what a sexually su- successful female. It doesn't mean that you want to sleep with your mother. It just means that they are your primary examples of what it means to achieve reproductive success, which is kind of what we're here for, right? Okay, I'm following you. Okay, so I just when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about you wanting to see your mom in a business suit at all, right? I'm not. I'm not. Certainly not. Moving on. Moving right. On. But the fact that your mother was in a suit-rich environment or was in a suited environment and your dad was quite the opposite. He was total blue-collar, right? Oh, definitely. Right. So the fact that you would find a woman sexually attractive to see in a suit and tie when your mother wore somewhat metaphorically but also somewhat practically the suit and tie in the relationship with your father is very interesting because, and we get into the ball gag in a second. I wasn't sure I was going to say that sentence tonight, but but I am because, you know, follow the show where the show goes, right? So your mother had two lives professionally and personally, right? So in the bank, she was competent and positive, right? Well-respected, friendly, people liked her, and and she obviously had was able to be assertive in her job because you can't even do mid-level banking without being assertive, right? Certainly. All right. Yes, yes, yes. So I bet you really liked that, Mom. And I bet you wanted more of that, Mom, at home. But uh, I never thought of it like that. But if your mom was that way at home, then there would be more conflict with your dad that wouldn't resolve anything, right? I'm following you. So at home, at work, you found your mother in the suit environment very, very attractive. And again, I'm not talking sexually, I just like, that's an attractive personality. People like her. She's friendly. She's successful. She's positive. She's assertive. She's respected, right? You like that. But at home, right. you really need her to shut up, right? Because it's just pointless fights. Right. Now, what does a ball gag ensure that a woman is not going to do other than the aforementioned <laughs> joke? She's not going to talk, right? I think we can... Right. So you have a need for your mom to not talk at home. In other words, 
when your mother is not talking or fighting back or retaliating against your dad, you can relax more, right? You can feel more safe and secure when your mother is not going to start a fight with your dad. Right. And you like putting a ball gag in a woman's mouth. God, I'm so stupid. (laughs) No, listen, this is hard stuff, man. I I just make it look easy. (laughs) But it's hard, right? It's hard, baby. No, but you know, it it is, right? It's hard to see these things in ourselves. Yeah. Your father was controlling, and you like bondage. Because when when you're tying someone up, you're in control. So sexuality, listen, this is my thoughts, right? So obviously don't let me tell you anything that goes against your experience or your, your ideas, but I'll make the case here. For men, I think for women too, sexuality occurs when we feel safe or now safe doesn't, I mean, I get that some people who like, you know, ball clamps and hot wax on the nipples and stuff like that or whatever, but we're just talking from your standpoint. Sexuality generally is at its best when a, when you or a person is relaxed and able to play. Because, I mean, adult sexuality is a form of, of play, right? So the question is, right. what is it that's going to make you feel the most relaxed? Well, I bet you felt pretty relaxed when you were at the bank with your mom because your dad wasn't around and your mom was being great, right? So I think that suits help you feel relaxed. I think that you feel relaxed when a woman isn't going to start a problem, in which case the ball gag is going to help you feel relaxed. And I think you feel relaxed when you're in control because that's what your dad did. Your dad would be in control and this would be his way of making himself feel secure or safe or whatever, right? So if you look at this sort of trinity of bondage, a woman in a bank suit, so to speak, and a ball gag, I think these are all things that reduce the anxiety of your pretty wretched childhood in this situation. And that allows you to play. It allows you to feel safe and secure enough that you can have fun, which is outside of procreation, kind of the point of sex, right? <laughs> Adult sex, right? So if, they, if you look at these particular situations, I think that they remove stimulus that were negative from your childhood and give you a sense of security and play and fun and, in a sense, safety that significantly enhances or maybe even just makes possible your sexual response. That's pretty amazing. Pretty fascinating. Uh, tell me yeah, how it lands for you, and I'm not asking you to... You don't have to confirm. I mean, I could be completely off off key here, but... Uh, that's the stuff that came up for me. Does it sort of sit with you like it's something worth exploring or interesting? And of course, the interesting question would be what's going on with your girlfriend, that this is how she ends up being in a place where she feels safe enough to play. But uh, how does it sort of land for you, this this possibility? Uh, it's definitely a fa- very, very interesting perspective. I think I think there might be some relevance to it. I think it's it's very interesting. It's something I'll have to like think about. Right. Okay, good. Well, good. I can, okay, I can as see, long as it... Uh, I can see and, the relationship, yeah. And then I would, you know, the reason why I think this is important to talk about, and listen, I get this is really, really tough stuff to bring up, and I really appreciate that you're doing it, because here's the thing. I would look elsewhere in your life, my friend, and say, okay, where do I feel safe to play? 
where do I feel safe to play? Where do I feel safe and secure enough to enjoy myself, to have fun? And if, you know, given that you grew up with, you know, a, a, a moody son of a bitch controlling, uh, aggressive, uh, bullying, and self-righteous when it comes to competence, who was kind of snuffing the life candle out on his wife, given that she had to escape to work to feel competent and, and respected and, and, and so, so to speak, loved, you had it, you know, really rough, stressful, difficult growing up. And if you need these particular rituals to feel safe based upon your history, and you said that you are taking meds for depression, you feel you have depression, my question would be, okay, where else in your life do you not feel secure enough to play? Because we're really at our best when we play. You know, when, I, when I'm doing this show, it's a form of play. I mean, I play like children play, which is very seriously and with the intent to learn and to instruct and all of that. But... In your life, I guess my question would be, where do you feel safe and secure and accepted enough that you can allow yourself to play, which is where not just happiness, but I think the most productivity in life comes comes out. And I guess that's a question. Do, do you have that in your life or do you think maybe that's why you feel some of this depression? I don't think I have a an immediate answer for that. I think my safe space is my bedroom. Right. My bed in my little my little nest. Right. Right. That's I think that you need be. Yeah, see see how how is it that people control us? Well the way that people control us is they make us feel unsafe. Right. I mean, you know, all of this social media censorship and deplatforming is just to make people feel jumpy. And listen, I, I mean, I refuse to surrender the joy in what it is that I'm doing out of this sense of jumpiness or imminent erasure from whatever it is. Like I can't because then they then I've lost right then then they've taken away my safe space they've taken away my fun and I can't really be that productive and I just won't like I won't I won't do that I won't I won't surrender that you have to try and maintain as much as possible and it can be a challenge and there are real dangers and threats out there so I'm not you know gainsaying any of that but I think you really do need to find a way and, and arrange your life and arrange your environment so that you can feel safe enough to really play because that's where the real happiness, I think, and real productivity and creativity in life is. And if you play seriously enough and you play strongly enough, it's hard to think that life is meaningless. Like nobody in the midst of a great orgasm thinks, huh, I wonder if there's any meaning or purpose to life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or when you've had a great idea or you've solved a difficult problem and you get those endorphins or whatever, right? Meaning or the pursuit of meaning is what we use to fill the canyon of unhappiness. We say, oh, well, if I can find meaning, and it's like, well, no, but the problem is that a lack of meaning, which I think is often associated with depression, a lack of meaning is a symptom of a lack of play. You know, if, when my daughter and I, if I'm chasing my daughter around the place and, and she likes being dragged along the floor and trying to grab onto the sides of walls and I pull her and stuff, like we don't sit there when we're doing that and giggling hysterically. We don't sit there and say, yes, but is there any meaning to all of this? <laughs> You know, it didn't make any sense because we're really enjoying ourselves. When I'm doing shows and enjoying myself, or even if the shows are difficult, I never sort of th sit there and say, is there a meaning to this? Because you don't need meaning when you have happiness, and you get happiness, I think, through play, and you get play through a sense of security, which is why, you know, all totalitarian regimes try and make you feel insecure at all times. That's the purpose of this, you know, woke culture, these attack mobs, this cancel culture is all to make you feel jumpy and nervous so you can't be creative. So if you have these rituals, bondage, the woman in the suit and the ball gag and so on, that give you a sense of play in your bedroom, then I think that the, the purpose to this 
conversation, I hope, is for you to start looking, and everyone out there, start looking in your life and say, okay, where am I too nervous to play? Where am I too nervous to self-express? Where am I I too nervous to, to, quote, let down my guard and and be honest and, and all of that? And if you can identify those places and find ways to achieve some kind of security to the point where you can play, the playing gives you joy and the joy erases your need for meaning and I think helps a lot with depression. I think uh, my depression is a whole other whole other call-in show. Okay. Well, I'm certainly happy to uh, chat with you about that, and I really do appreciate everyone's time. I'm sorry we did not get to everyone uh, once again. The demand and the supply are, are not matching up perfectly, but I really do appreciate everyone's time. Thank you so much. I will certainly talk to you guys before we get to the uh, end of the year. Uh, it is the 27th of... December 2019. Thank you, everyone, so much. Great pleasure chatting with you guys. A great honor to do this with you in the world. Don't forget to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show. Massively appreciated, my friends. It's been an honor and a great pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Steph. Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.